Hey guys, Naor here. We have a new podcast called The Melting Podcast, and it's about Aliyah and what it's like to become an Israeli. So, if you're Olim or you know someone who's considering making Aliyah, do check it out. Go to MeltingPodcast.com. Enjoy the show. Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. In the fall of 2016, something truly bizarre happened in the United States Embassy in Havana, Cuba. According to reports, 22 embassy staffers were suffering from mild brain damage, concussions, and permanent hearing loss. Scientists and researchers are still debating the causes of these events, but many suspected covert sonic attacks. In response, the U.S. expelled two Cuban diplomats and warned U.S. citizens not to travel to Cuba. These peculiar events took place just one year after the U.S. Embassy was reinstated in Havana and only a few months after President Obama became the first U.S. president to visit Cuba since 1928 as part of what became known as the Cuban Thaw. The Thaw marked a warming in the relations between Cuba and the U.S., a move which was highly controversial. In the midst of all this was one American Jew from Long Island. Alan Gross was a U.S. government contractor and social entrepreneur who traveled to developing countries to bring modern communication technology, like satellites, phones, and internet, to the locals. His journey led him to Cuba in 2009, where he provided local Jewish communities with various technological equipment. However, during his fifth visit to Cuba, something unexpected happened. The 65-year-old Gross was arrested by the Cuban police. About the events that unfolded next, we will hear from the man himself. Today we are deeply honored to be joined by Alan Gross. Two Nice Jewish Boys is produced by us on our free time. If you feel like helping us out and donating, go to 2NJB.com donate. Any donation is much appreciated. Hello, Alan. Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So where to begin? I don't even know. <laughs> I guess we can begin at what went wrong. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the project was a huge success. I it was supposed to be a technical, strictly a technical project. Uh-huh. My job was to bring broadband uh, connectivity on a pilot basis to three different communities. And uh, fortunately, I was able to work with the Jewish communities uh, on the island. So I went to Havana, Camaway, and Santiago de Cuba. It's a small community. Very Jewish small. Community. Very small. When I started going there, I was told there were about 1,700 uh, on the whole island. And now I'd be surprised if there were 1,000. While I was in, while I was a guest of the Cuban government, um, I think about 300 Jewish Cubans made Aliyah. So what happened? In 2009, you're there on your fifth visit to there, Cuba. There, the fifth visit, I was supposed to go home on December the 4th, a Friday morning. I had, uh, you know, packed my bags. I took a shower. I was starting to doze off in bed around 10 o'clock at You're night. by yourself. By myself. And, uh, you know, I made arrangements with a taxi to pick me up at 6 o'clock in the morning to take me to the airport Friday morning. Thursday night at 10 o'clock, I hear bang, 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 open the door. 
what the heck is that? And I go and I look through the peephole of the door, and there are these four gigantic guys in civilian clothes standing on the other side of the door. Open the door, we break it down. Okay, <laughs> I'll open the door. And uh, they came in, they said, get your things, you're coming with us. No identification, no... Nothing. They nothing, didn't read nothing. you your rights. They didn't read me my rights. There was no Miranda. Actually, it's funny because my translator's name was Miranda. <laughs> A little ironic. They uh, read you your rights. There just were none. Yeah, so that's right. That's pretty <laughs> much it. To read. It didn't take very long. And so, um, you know, law and order, there was nothing like that. So they uh, put me in a car and they, you know, crammed me in between these two gigantic guys. And um, we start speeding through the streets of Havana. What are you thinking? I'm thinking of the movie uh, Midnight Express. You know, dun, 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 You know, when, when the guy's trying to escape and they have this big chase scene, uh -huh. except nobody was chasing us. You know, I was in the backseat of the car and we're driving through Havana. We're banging, bumping. Roads are not very good there. And they take me on the outskirts of town to this, this uh, like, uh, Quonset hut area mm -hmm. and it said immigration on a sign so i figured okay they're going to deport me i was going to leave anyway good and i sat there for about an hour for about an hour and then they take me on another high speed you know chase uh through havana and they took me to a place called via marista and this uh is like a regional prison where they they tend to keep political prisoners. I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know about this stuff. No one tells you what's going on. Nobody tells me anything. I said, what's going on? What's going on? They, they keep motioning, you know, wait, wait, wait. And so I get to Via Marista and they confiscate all my stuff and um, my clothes and my wallet. And, and they uh, said, you're going to stay overnight and we'll take you to the airport in the morning. Confiscate your clothes, meaning they put you in prison attire? Well, they didn't put me in prison attire yet uh, because uh, at Via Marista, they took my blood pressure. This young doctor, this young guy, they called him doctor. He was a little bit younger than you guys. And uh, he said, you know, your blood pressure is very high. We're afraid you're going to have a stroke, which is, I never had high blood pressure in my life. And he reaches into his jeans and he pulls out a pill. And he said, here, take this. I said, you take it. I'm not going to take, take a pill from some guy's pocket. You know, who knows what he had in that yeah, pocket? Yeah, I just by chance you know? had the perfect remedy for yeah. the made-up <laughs> problem I so, just came up with. So uh, I wouldn't take the pill. So he goes to his superior. The superior comes in. He says, Alan, you know, we're afraid you're going to have a stroke. Take the pill. I said, you take the pill. And then I went up the chain of command. Finally, the jefe, the chief of Via Marista for that shift came in and he said, Alan, listen, this pill is not going to cause you any harm. If you don't take it and you stroke, I'm going to have a lot of problems. <laughs> I'm going to be in big trouble. It's not going to, I promise it's not going to hurt you. Please just take the pill. There was something reasonable to what he was saying. So I said, all right, give me the pill. So I wiped the pill off because it had been through about four or five different hands by that point. And they bring me a juice box. And, and so I, I took the pill, and the, the jefe, the chief, says, go ahead, drink. So I start drinking the juice box, 
And he reminded me of Peter Lorre. I don't know if you know who Peter Lorre was, an actor. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's it. Drink, drink. I, you know, I thought <laughs> I was in a science fiction movie. And uh, so I, I, I took it. It turns out it was a sedative. The and pill or the juice? No, the pill. The pill. The juice was good. <laughs> the pill was a sedative, and they sometimes drug their their prisoners. How come? And uh, you'll have to ask them. I, I, Why not? Just, Easier to I deal mean, with, I guess. Yeah, it make me happy, you know. But it didn't make me happy, I, and it I didn't. didn't put, did it put you to sleep? No, no, I didn't. I don't think I slept a wink the first night. They transferred me from Via Marista to a place called the Carlos J. Finley. In Spanish, it's Carlos Jota Finley. Uh, military hospital where they had a one building that was their prison building mm-hmm. on campus, and then they took my clothes and gave me stripes, striped pajamas, and they gave me these stiff brown sheets, tan sheets. They said, "Here, make your bed, and go to sleep." So I walk in. You know, they put me into the cell, and the first guy wakes up and he, you know, he gives me the solidarity signal. And I, I go over to an empty uh, bed. You know, it's a hospital bed. The beds were made in East Germany in the 1960s, if that gives you any idea of what we were sitting on. And I, I lied down in bed, you know, and, and I, I didn't sleep a wink. So <laughs> it might say something for the pharmaceutical industry of, of Cuba. <laughs> um, but that so, was my first night, and... Uh, you, the, at where, this, you weren't taken to the airport the next no, day. No, <laughs> the next morning I was really upset because I, I made arrangements with this taxi driver to pick me up. And I said, look, you have to call the taxi driver to tell her, you know, not to come. And they said, don't worry, we'll take care of it, you know. I said, well, I'm going to miss my flight. They said, don't worry, there'll be another flight later on. That was five, wow. five years later. Five years. Yeah. So you spent your first night uh, in in Cuban prison in what was the place called Carlos J Finley military hospital Carlos J Finley military hospital and at what point did you realize I'm not getting out of here anytime soon um it took about uh, a few days a few weeks maybe i thought the cavalry would come the us cavalry mm-hmm. would come in and rescue me and they didn't come and uh you know i didn't i had one phone call I was allowed to make the following Sunday night. I was arrested on a Thursday night. Sunday night, they let me call my wife so that I could tell her I was alive. And, you know, I said something like, uh, I didn't want to make a joke out of it. I was going to say, honey, I've been detained. Uh, but uh, I didn't think that was a good idea. So I, I said, I'm fine. Are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. She said, I know where you are. And I said, good, that makes one of us. <laughs> and and um, I didn't talk to her for another six weeks. Uh, in between that time, after I had been uh, captive for about four weeks, I had a, uh, a visit from the um, U.S. interest section. Uh, the con- it was a consular visit. Cuba is a signatory to the International Consular Agreement, so if they have prisoners from another country... The consulate from that country is allowed to send, you know, visitors. Okay. So, uh, so they came over and uh, didn't tell me anything. They didn't give me any news, any information. They all they said was, "You didn't do anything wrong, and we're going to do everything we can to get you out of here. You're our number one priority." And I heard that pretty much for every every month. You know, we met almost every month. 
And I pretty much had heard that each time I had that visit. And it wasn't true because you said you did do something wrong. Well, uh, so I, I did. I, then, did. I, broke, I violated the law. So even then, the delegates who come to visit you don't inform you with that fact. Yeah, but yet. morally, I didn't do anything wrong. That, morally, that's what they were yeah, saying. Well. And, uh, but it wasn't a moral environment. There's nothing <laughs> right. moral about the Cuban government. And frankly, there are a few things that are not so moral about the U.S. government also. Right. Um, so you were eventually uh, charged first with espionage? No, no, no. They were going to... They, they never actually used the word espionage. Oh, okay. You know, during... What I was charged with 14 months later, after my arrest... Uh, and was put on trial for was uh, being a threat to the territorial integrity or security of the Republic of Cuba. Mm. What does that mean? <laughs> Beats the hell out of me. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, they were saying that I was there by myself to overthrow the government of Cuba. You know, I, I'm. What were they? I, I mean. Did they have any evidence? Do they look for evidence? How does the, the judicial... Anything I brought, you know, was wide open. You know, I stayed in a... I went through two types of security at the airport. First was the security folks, and the second was customs. I showed them everything. I wasn't trying to conceal anything. What were you bringing there? Uh, routers. Uh, the bad thing that I brought, according to the Cubans, were, was the um, uh, began. Uh, BGAN is it's uh, an acronym for Broadband Global Area Network, and it's like um, it's like a mini VSAT that connects to a satellite up in the space, you know, 22,300 miles above the Earth, and then it bounces back down and connects to the Internet. I read, maybe it's, uh, it's false, but I read that you were found with this chip that damages uh, the ability to track down and it's all only manufactured by the CIA or something crazy like that. Is that true? Well, there's there's used to be a word that was used in Israel a lot and that word was chantarish. Yeah. You know, which Bumpkis. means bullshit. Stoyot. I had I had no special chips. I had SIM cards for the phones that I brought. I brought Blackberries with me and I had one SIM card for each of the BGANs. I brought three BGANs, and and that was what they were referring to. Mm -hmm. I'm not part of the CIA. I'm not part of the U.S. military. I have no access to any of this stuff. Everything I brought with me was off-the-shelf stuff that anybody can buy commercially. So we don't have to ask if, you, if you're a spy. No. <laughs> we're it, off the hook. I wish I had been a spy. <laughs> I would have been home a lot sooner. <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, the bottom line to this is I, if I'd have been a spy, they would have traded a spy for a spy. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't a spy. And the U.S. government couldn't get its hands around the idea of trading me, a non-spy, for foreign intelligence officers. Because they had spies, Cuban spies. The U.S. had incarcerated. five Cuban prisoners known as Los Cinco. So if, if, if we can back, go back to your trial... <laughs> if you if you could describe to us this process the trial yeah because... oh that was great <laughs> it was did like you have a, an advocate i had a uh, i had a lawyer a cuban lawyer who worked for the government of cuba i had u.s lawyers too uh they wouldn't let me meet with my u.s lawyer until after the trial makes sense 
Of course. <laughs> and it made sense that the Cuban lawyer was in a complete conflict of interest because not only did she work for the government, she also represented the families of Los Cinco, those five Cuban guys mm. who were in prison in the U.S. And they had told us, we were preparing for a trial. Uh, we were anticipating charges of, of smuggling. And so we were preparing for a trial to uh, defend ourselves against smuggling charges. And two weeks before the trial, they actually issued us the charges, and they were much more serious charges. Charges that can uh, cost up to 20 years in prison. Well, 18 I, years. 18. Yeah, ah, well, yeah. you know, that's and not... And they gave me a big break. <laughs> that's, that's a relief. No, no, they really, <laughs> they gave me a big break by giving me 15 instead of 18. If I had killed somebody, I would have had 17 years you know so next time i go back wow. to cuba i'll you know i'll, I'll just no, kill no, somebody might as well. <laughs> no 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 i, I wouldn't so, i wouldn't do that so what how did it look like was there i guess there wasn't a fair trial it looked like a b movie you know there were they were like eight cameras video cameras going and they they allowed me to make a uh, an opening statement closer to the mic please they allowed me to make an opening statement yeah and uh Uh, which I did, and then the, in English, of in course. In English, of course, and they supposedly translated. <laughs> I don't know. And then the prosecutor went on to accuse me of every dastardly deed that they considered dastardly deeds done by the U.S. government against Cuba since the turn of the century, the previous century. You know, most stuff that happened before I was born, or you know, happened at a time when I had you know, just started to enjoy puberty. And so, uh, you know, it was ridiculous. They puberty blamed, is a dangerous time. They blamed me for stuff, you know, that happened under Truman, under Kennedy. and Seriously? And, seriously. And, and uh, the, the cameras were just focused on me. There were 21 witnesses for the prosecution and one witness for the defense. Who? The cab driver that I stiffed. <laughs> who was also mad at you yeah. for stiffing him well you know no actually she and she. she and she you know didn't say anything negative about me she said that i you know had spoken glowingly about uh, cuba and the the people of cuba not so much the government um and uh the the people from the jewish community who had been brought in as witnesses for the prosecution didn't say anything negative about me at all in fact Uh, one of the the guys came in uh, was was uh, ex you know cross-examined by the um, uh, prosecutor and he said well what did Alan do he said uh, he set us up with internet and and what did he do he showed us programs he said well what did one program do he said well with one program he showed us the world what was that program Google Earth and I showed him the old city You know, I, I showed him, it, it was, the, the reaction from him was incredible. And it made me feel really good until I remembered I was on trial. So on that point, <laughs> that was you a know, sobering moment. Yeah. You're, um, facing, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're no. facing those 15 years or 18 years. And the trial obviously is a sham. Yes. And the U.S. doesn't seem to... soothe things up for you that much right at that point I mean that's correct because there were no um, diplomatic relations right there was no avenue for constructive engagement so how, what do you feel I mean 
I, do you do you realize at that moment what's ahead? Oh yeah, I mean I'd been there 14 months before the trial. Uh, the first year was uh, one of sensory deprivation. I had no books to read, no music, no television, no radio. I wasn't even allowed to have paper and pen. And lights were on, very bright lights were on 24 hours a day, and we weren't allowed to go out of the cell. I saw maybe 20 minutes of sunlight the first year. Also reminds one of uh, East Germany in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. That's so were the... you, you were in a cell with someone, though? Two Cubans. Two Cubans. Usually. And did they speak any English? Uh, I met 20 guys all together, and out of the 20, there were two guys who were with me for lengths of time who had some English, mm -hmm. and uh, I learned some Spanish. From them? From them, yeah. Mm -hmm. You learned Spanish over the five years? Then. Yes, a little bit. Okay. And, no and they treated you fine, these roommates? They were great. They were mostly, of the 20 guys, I'd say 17 were, were political prisoners. And, so they and, weren't these weren't thugs. No, no. And of the three guys that were actual criminals, one of them was a really nice guy. The other two were thugs. Okay. And, but uh, kind of a game of numbers. So they were outnumbered, so maybe it wasn't as Well, there were two at a time. Ah, you know, I see, so there I were see. three of us in a cell. Mm. Yeah. And in order for me to get my 10,000 steps in, because mm -hmm. I started exercising right away, in order to get my 10,000 steps in, they had to be sleeping. Mm. Or in their in their on their East German medical beds, hospital beds, so yeah. I could do my route. I see. So, what I'm wondering is, you're sitting in this cell, and you, as a contracted employee of the United States government, and um, you know, an innocent civilian citizen of the United States, and you know that, or I don't know if you know at the time, but the United States has these five Cuban prisoners. Right. No, I knew about them. And you knew about it. Sure. How did that make you? I mean, were you furious, furious, frustrated? I mean, I'm sure you must have been. But you know, my Cuban lawyer came to me early on and said, "You know, Alan, I, I think the government is going to want to trade you for the five Cuban prisoners, for which I represent." Los Cinco. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> okay. And I said, "Don't hold your breath." I mean, really, I, I, I this was how far in? Uh, this was within months. You know, within the first few months, she told me that. and uh, So you were able to have the clarity to understand that that's not going to happen? One thing that I had uh, in, from my side of things was clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, w I did not have access to any information, so I didn't know what was going on for the first couple of years, almost three years while I was there. I didn't think the government was doing, our government, the U.S. government, was doing anything. That's not true. Um, Hillary Clinton got the ball rolling p towards the end of her tenure as Secretary of State in having one of the first high-level government-to-government uh, meetings, either in Haiti or Panama or Mexico or something. And uh, when Kerry, and Kerry was, was supportive as a U.S. senator, when he became Secretary of State, you know, he had a, a big learning curve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, so he, he, uh, he's a nice guy, but uh, he writes very small letters. He wrote me a letter. It took me a long time to decipher it. Oh, it was handwritten? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, excuse me for the cliche, Ellen, but 
I gotta ask, how does one remain sane and uh, how do you cling to life? Cling how do to you life, not go in, go crazy. Well, you know, it's debatable as to how sane I was before I went to Cuba. But <laughs> you know, uh, there were three things that got me through the experience. First, uh, thinking of the part of my family, a very miraculous part of my family, who survived the the Holocaust. They were from this one family. These were my father's first cousins. Six brothers and one sister. Four had been in concentration camps. Two were in labor camps. One had been beaten to a pulp and left for dead. And they all survived. And I'm from the same gene pool. So I I took comfort knowing that my experience, my ordeal, wasn't nearly as acute or intense as theirs was. And they were kids when they went through this experience. Yet they all survived. Three still live today, one in Atlanta and two in Florida. And I I just thought about them every day, and it gave me comfort knowing that they survived their ordeal and I was going to survive mine. The second thing was the the exercise. It was very important. I I lost a lot of weight. Um, I was obese going in. Uh, I lost 114 pounds, about 55 kilos, something like that. And um, I didn't want to lose muscle. I knew I lost almost all the fat. I didn't want to start losing muscle. I started exercising the, v- the very first day. And the exercise increased. And it got to the point where not only was I doing the, the 10,000 steps, but I was doing 50 pull-ups a day. I was doing sit-ups, push-ups, and all kinds of exercises. And when there were more guards watching me, I would do more pull-ups. I would do more exercise. And... How come? Why? I wanted them to know that if they gave me any stuff, it was gonna, it was gonna come back. It was at gonna them. cost them because yeah. you, there was that risk. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what risks there was gonna be to me, but I had heard all kinds of stuff about my compañeros. You know, uh, people in Cuba are killed when they're in prison. Uh, they're beaten up, and not only by by the uh, paramilitary police. Uh, they're taken into custody and they're killed. This happens in Cuba. And there are so many political prisoners in Cuba, even today. Uh, it, it's not a very nice government. And the third thing? Humor. Hmm. <laughs> I, with I, yourself or with everyone? With everyone. Everything was, I, I made a joke out of everything. Now, I tend to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good defense mechanism. So I, I had honed that mechanism my co- it's a coping mechanism yeah and you know which I, by the way existed during the holocaust as well yes yes i mean i i mean i, I went to a psychiatrist within a few weeks after i was released because i wanted to make sure i wasn't going to have any kind of psychotic episode or you know everybody's saying oh alan you know you have to be careful of ptsd and all this stuff yeah yeah i'm going <laughs> to a shrink i'm not going to listen to those folks so never you never are at a point where it's just i'm giving up well if i had given up yeah. uh i mean i knew what i would have done yeah uh i i i planned out exactly how i was going to kill somebody oh, and really? i i knew exactly who it was going to be and there might have been more than one person involved and i made it very clear through my cellmates pardon me, that I had this plan that when I, if I gave up, uh-huh. I was going to kill this guy. He was a guard? 
No, I'm not going to say who he okay. was. But, the, but but that was your way of kind of saying this is how I'm going to commit suicide. But I'm well, no, death by cop. No, uh, I never thought that part through. I never even addressed it. Uh-huh. I just said if I get to a point where I think I'm going to be here the whole nine yards, the whole fifteen years, I'm going to kill this son of a bitch. Without naming who it is, or even well, I wanted because why. I knew I knew that we were monitored audio. Uh, we were under audio and vi- and video surveillance the whole uh-huh. time, so I knew they could see me talking to my cellmates, in sometimes animated ways. You know, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. But I'm saying, and why? I know exactly how I'm going to do it. And I didn't identify who it was. But why? Why not? Who was this guy? But why this guy? What happened with this person? Doesn't matter. Okay. It put them on notice. Uh-huh. Don't screw around with this guy. I see. It was a tactic. Mm, uh-huh. I see. I see. So it, wasn't, I, it wasn't a specific reason. It was just that a you wanted to, them to. Well, you wanted there were them two. To there were two this. reasons. One was to put them on notice. Don't screw around with me. Uh-huh. Nobody did. Uh, one guy tried to give me a hard time. One of, actually, there was one guard and one of my cellmates tried to give me a hard time. And, you know, fortunately, my cellmate I put in his place. And the guard, you know, I, I said, you want to do something? Do it. You know, and I, you know, and he didn't, he didn't bother me. He said, shut up. I said, no, you shut up. I mean, I got away with murder. Really? I was valuable to them. I was their asset. Yeah. Is they going to let something happen to me? You know, they're going to, they'll be screwed. But all it takes is one over-emotional big ego guard who doesn't think quite as ahead as you do well after i didn't mention this but you know i had regular prison guards at first after the trial or just up until the trial they uh brought in their their special swat team Mm -hmm. their special grupo tactico tactico especial you know wearing black clothes you know these were these were the cream of the cream Mm-hmm. And and they were essentially protecting me. Mm-hmm. That was their job. I, I mean, they were guarding me, but they were protecting me. When when they took me to the consular visits, they would move me from Carlos Finley Military Hospital back to Via Marista. It took about forty people in about six cars in the in the uh, convoy. You know, entourage, mm-hmm. and all of the police at the major intersections. Was, I mean, it was bullshit. I said, "Geez, you treat me like Frank Sinatra here." <laughs> so you knew at that point that you were valuable. Yeah, but I also knew I couldn't escape. Yeah, I mean, with that kind of scrutiny, yeah, that kind of protection, you know, I was stuck. In the second year after the trial, things eased up a bit. Mm-hmm. They made things less terrible. <laughs> I, I used to say the conditions improved. Uh, <laughs> I can't really say that. They just became less terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the food was awful, just awful. What, it, what was the food? Infested with roaches and ants. And um, so I was very selective about my protein. And uh, uh, Meaning you, you did eat the roaches? No, I, didn't. Okay. I wouldn't. I, I just couldn't do it. Okay. Uh, I mean, you couldn't That's sit horrible. In, the, in the cell without, you know, flicking a, a, a cucaracha off your leg, off your arm. I mean, it, it was Showering? really disgusting. Would they, uh... We had a very cold shower um, 
in the in the first cell the the cell that I spent most of my time with these two other guys uh there were three beds and there was an alcove that had a toilet and a shower mm-hmm. and after the trial they put a uh, some kind of electric attachment a device on the shower that would heat the water and uh, those things burned up pretty frequently in fact, one day there was a fire in the shower. Uh, one of my cellmates uh, started screaming, you know, oh, you know, fuego, fuego. You know, I turn around, that means fire, fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I see flames shooting up. And I said, don't touch it. Get out of the shower. Said, I don't have any clothes. You know, no ropas, no ropas. I said, I'm not going to look. And I called the guard over. And I said, guard, fuego, fuego. And he comes up to me and he, and he gives me the signal, you know, palm out, pushing, palm out. That means wait. He had to go get permission to turn the electricity off. I mean, Meaning they, 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 they can't they make just, decisions. And they can't. No, but this is, I mean, you guys could have burned alive in that cell. Well, I, 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 I didn't think it was going to burn us up alive, but it wasn't, it was dangerous. You he know, had to yeah. call Castro. Get electrocuted, you know. Yeah, have him turn the switch. <laughs> Come into the shower. Go ahead. Step in that pile so, of water. You know. yeah. So then what happened after five years? I came home. How? <laughs> and, and, all right, here's the, here's the thing. And this is something people don't really know about. While I was there, uh, there were a number of, of legislators who um, were very supportive of improving relations with, with Cuba. And they were supportive of getting me out. And Obama was also um, interested in, in reestablishing some type of formal relations to have this thaw. Uh, but he didn't have the political coverage. And the, th- the third lawyer that we hired, a guy named Scott Gilbert, Gilbert LLP, uh, great guy. Um, if you saw uh, Bridge of Spies with... Mm-hmm, with yeah. uh, uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was a Philadelphia lawyer who represented insurance companies. Yeah. And he knew how to solve problems. He was a strategic problem solver. And he did everything he could to defend his clients. My lawyer, Scott Gilbert, would have been the guy to sit on the other side of the table from, from Hanks. <laughs> because he sues insurance companies. Uh. And we we had him in on the case uh, to handle our litigation. And after uh, our first meeting, uh, he got this idea that that he could get me out. And the other folks who we had weren't making any progress, and he had a different approach. So we we said, okay, Scott, you know, do it. And and he did. And so... How? Well, he changed the tone. He he treated the Cuban government with respect on uh, an interpersonal basis. He wasn't hammering at them. You know, he wasn't saying, you know, Alan Gross needs to be released unconditionally right away. Boom. You know, that's what the State Department kept saying. And uh, he had a different approach, you know. Because they come in with big egos. Oh, everybody has egos. Everybody. And uh, and the United States, you know, has a history of being somewhat paternalistic towards uh, other other governments and other countries. That's the understatement of the year. 
So what was his approach? How would he approach yeah, that? Yeah, like our current president of the United States is paternalistic, but he never marries. The, never mind. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Um, so so Scott, got the, he cha- Scott changed the whole tone of the interaction, and, and he started interacting with uh, the Department of, of Justice in the U.S., and you know the the, the folks there there were problems with the case with the case against the Cubans, and there was a possibility that something might have happened to overturn the their convictions. And you know I'm I'm really taking liberties here. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, well, what are we going to do with these guys? Should we retry them or just send them home? And so uh, the answer was, let's send them home, but let's l- try to leverage this, you know, as a as a government and see what we can, you know, do with it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Eric Holder signed off on the st- on a strategy, and they government had their own strategy, but Scott essentially got the ball really rolling. And when uh, Holder signed off on it, Kerry signed off on it, and then uh, uh, Senator Leahy from Vermont and Senator Flake from Arizona and a bunch of other guys, Chris Van Hollen, who was a Congress uh, House of Representatives at that time, he was my congressman. Great guy. He was the first elected official to contact my wife within days after I was arrested. Stayed with the case the whole time, as did a number of people. But the Senate ended up having a letter go to Obama that was signed by almost three quarters of the Senate, saying it's your constitutional responsibility to do everything within your power to bring him home, short of war. And we want you to do everything possible to bring him home. So that started to give him political coverage, and then him being Obama. And that's when senior-level talks began with the, with the Cuban government. Mm-hmm. NSC, National Security Council, essentially took over the logistics of the process. Ben Rhodes, who was... Um, assistant uh, national security advisor and um, uh, a guy named Zuniga uh, who was the Latin American uh, director at NSC and they they uh, made it happen so, so it, it kind of sounds like your uh, case was one maybe of many catalysts that got the ball rolling oh i was a catalyst u.s cuban relations i mean i at first i called myself a peon yeah <laughs> well a, a peon is a, a pawn yeah yeah uh in, a, in spanish peon means pawn uh but i was a catalyst i was i was the the um the pivot point uh-huh. uh that led to uh, renewed diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Now, we all screwed up. The U.S. government and Cuba screwed up uh, what could have been uh, something a lot better. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it was great because it got me home. I was talking to my wife on Monday, December fifteenth, two 2014. And at the end of the conversation, all of our conversations were kind of guarded because we knew everybody was listening. At the end of the conversation, she says, Alan... We're not going to talk like this again. I said, okay, Judy. You know, and Ju- uh, Judy, my wife, was my rocking champion. She was my voice and my f- she was the face of my case in the media on Capitol Hill. And between her uh, activities and Scott, uh, and there was another person involved, uh, Jill Zuckman 
from a uh, public affairs company called SKD Knickerbocker, and and what? Jill was our media advisor. And so you didn't believe her when she said that. No, I I, I understood what she was saying. I said thank thank you. I got it. Thank you very much. The next day, December sixteenth, Tuesday. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a phone in the cell when when I had permission to use the phone. They escort me to uh, another room down the hall. And so uh, they take me to the room down the hall. I'm talking to Scott. And Scott says, Alan, we're going to get up early in the morning, tomorrow morning, uh, and we're going to go to Andrews Air Force Base, fly down on Air Force One Alternative, pick you up and take you home. I said, thanks, Scott. See you tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, no, really, uh, we're, really, we're going to do that. I said, Scott, I believe you. Thank you. I've been down Did, this road before. So you didn't believe him. I did believe him, but I had been disappointed before. And I said, before I, before I celebrate, I want to wait until we're in the air. And so uh, when we ended the call and they took me back to my cell, my cellmates had been cleared out along with all of the rest of her stuff. And that's when I knew uh, that it was going to happen. And the day of the release? release how did Wait, well, how, uh, hold on. I'm, I'm just trying to understand why did you know that that was a sign? Because they got rid of my cellmates before I had a chance to tell them that I was going home, mm -hmm. before I had an opportunity to say goodbye. One guy I had been cellmates with for two years. So they were just... just I mean, that's brutal. That's just... That's who they, they are. They just wanted to inflict pain. On, on, on those on you guys. you and on those guys. On those guys. On those guys. I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there are 11.2 million prisoners on that island. And so... Still. Still. Today. Yeah, 11, that's the population. Meaning the population yeah, of yeah, Cuba, yeah. yeah. And so the 17th uh, came around. It was the first day of Hanukkah. Um, they took me to an airfield, and uh, Air Force One alternative came in, picked me up. Uh, Leahy, Flake... Chris Van Hollen, my lawyer, and my wife. Not in that order. Hmm. My, my wife first. And they came and we were in this room. Uh, I was there with two people from the consulate. Jeff De Laurentiis, who was the, um, the uh, chief of mission, and uh, a guy named Dan King. I'm going to sneeze. Go. Go ahead. <laughs> La Briot. La Briot. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to get that. All good. <laughs> no, um, and Dan King, who who was just they were great guys. I had not met Steve. Uh, I had not met uh, Jeff De Laurentiis because six months prior to the end of my tenure there, I stopped seeing people. I said no more. I, I'll see uh, if somebody from Capitol Hill comes. I'll I'll maybe see that person, but. I don't want any more consular visits. And it drove the Cubans crazy. Um, uh, How come? I mean, what? Well, they, they, you know, they thought it would be uh, something that I would look forward to. But I wanted to uh, get them, uh, you know, uneasy. In fact, I, did a, I had a uh, hunger strike, which I called a fast. And uh, this was in April of 2014. Uh, I didn't eat anything for nine days. I finally uh, agreed to end the fast uh, at the request of my mother, who was uh, dying of lung cancer at the time. And so that drove them crazy. Did so, you get to see your mother no, before? I didn't, unfortunately. And so um, so the 17th comes around, and I'm in this room with De Laurentiis and King and some Cubans, and, 
And then the uh, Washington entourage comes in, headed by uh, Patrick Leahy, Senator Leahy, and they had the Cubans had this big spread of food. I hadn't seen so much food in Cuba the whole time I was there. <laughs> no Cuban has probably. Incre- no Cuban has. <laughs> Leahy gets there and he says, uh, "I didn't come to Cuba to eat. Let's go." The Cubans wanted to sit and talk. He said, no, we came here to get Alan. We're going. Goodbye. So we walked to the tarmac. You didn't tell him, hold on, hold on a no, second. No, no. Let's reassess this. No, no. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to eat anyway. I had, I had a problem. Uh, I had broken five teeth. Uh-huh. And uh, I lost like three of the front teeth, except I had this one fang in the middle hanging down. And so I, I didn't have uh, an easy time you know eating eating you know biting things so so they take you to the airplane well we get on the airplane and we we take off and uh when we entered into uh, u.s airspace then i did a few fist pumps and and that was that was great and Leahy, everybody everybody just got very emotional it was a realization that uh i was going home and the ordeal was over even before we got on the plane you know looking at the United States of America on the outside of the plane really gave me chills, and it still does when I think about it. Uh, if it had said El Al, I, I would have gotten chills too. <laughs> and so we get on the plane, we take off, and uh, I was uh, tweaking a, uh, a statement that I had prepared because uh, I knew I would have to talk to the, to the media, to the press. Mm-hmm. I figured I ought to have something to say. So I, I had this little thing I was working on, and flight attendants brought in lunch, corned beef sandwiches and potato latkes. It was the first day of Hanukkah. And so uh, I've, I've got the sandwich in my hand, and I'm trying to figure out how I can gnaw on this thing with my fang, when all of a sudden another flight attendant comes in, Mr. Gross, yes, uh, there's a call for you. Said, what do you mean there's a call for me? Who's calling me here? <laughs> uh, it's the president. All the while the sandwich is in your hand. I've got the sandwich in my hand. I look at the sandwich. I look at the flight attendant. Look at the sandwich. Tell him, tell him to call me back. Look at the flight attendant. <laughs> look at the sandwich. Oh, all right. I'll take the call. I put the sandwich down. I, I'm Aww. sitting in the, in, the, in the office of this. This, this plane is just fantastic. I'm sitting at this beautiful desk, uh, and I've, I've got the phone, and I said, Hello, this is Alan Gross. And he says, Oh, hello, Alan. This is Barack Obama. Oh, Mr. President, how are you? I'm fine, Alan. How are you? Well, I, I was just about to eat a corned beef sandwich. <laughs> he says, oh, I thought I heard a little mustard on your lip. <laughs> and then it was, it, was, uh, it was a little awkward. He seemed a little, uh, a little reserved or shy. I don't know if he thought I was angry with him or because it really took a long time to get me the hell out of there. Yeah. I wasn't angry at him. I mean, you know, there are other things going on around the world. You know, Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq and that North Korea. That takes a lot of, uh, I mean, yeah. a lot of, uh, I, I would say even detachment to be able to, to feel that or think that. Well, I've been working internationally for almost 40 years. You know, mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I pretty much know what goes on around the world You've based seen on my shit, work. I've seen, seen a lot. Yeah, of but stuff. when it's happening to you, you know, you you look for there are for realities. People to blame. My objective was try to remain rational and practical. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you can you have a scale of of uh, of uh, what's the what's the scale uh, principle versus practicality. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had to be practical. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I might have ended up dead or someone else might have ended up dead. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, or all of us would have. And so I wasn't upset with Obama. I, I had written to Obama and I said, listen, Mr. President, despite my circumstances, I wouldn't want to trade places with you. And I was serious. And so uh, we had a nice little chat, and he says, well, Alan, you know, after all the dust settles, Michelle and I are going to want to have you and Judy over to the White House. And I said, well, that would be great, Mr. President, but I want you to know right now that I'm not a Rose Garden kind of guy. When, uh, what was his name? Um, The soldier who had been captured in Um, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. (coughs) Pardon me. I can't remember his name. It escapes Uh me. Uh, and when he was released, they had this big, you know, deal at the White House with his family. And then it turns out he was a, you know, deserter. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, there was a scandal associated Br- with Brent, it. Not Brent, not uh, Something like yeah, that. Yeah. Bechtel or not Bechtel. Yeah, it's yeah. an engineering company. But anyway. Um, so why did he say to that? He understood, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, they invited us to sit in Michelle Obama's box at the State of the Union. And before the State of the Union... There was this big dinner uh, at the White House with about 20 people who'd come in who were also sitting in the behind uh, the first lady. And it was it was Scott Kelly was one of one of the astronaut that went up for a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we uh, hit it off quite, quite well. And um and so we had this really nice dinner, had the photo op with uh, the first lady and the vice president's wife and uh, then we went to the uh, State of the Union, and, you know, it, it was really a great experience. Once is enough, though. Like yeah. going to a yeah, football yeah. game, you know, I'm so much more that, comfortable watching so was, it at home. Was it, was it worth it for that State of the Union? <laughs> the five years? Yeah, the five years. Let me think about that and get back to you. I, I have a question, though, because, you know, since the thaw, many Israelis, but also Americans, travel to Cuba. Yes, and they fall in love with its exoticness and authenticity. And my question is, should they reconsider? Uh, no, I think it, it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful island despite the decay, despite the disintegration of the infrastructure. So there's no uh, danger, you the, think? Well, I wouldn't mention my name if you went there. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't bring any satellite equipment with you. Okay. Um, but Fair I enough. don't think there's any danger. I have not heard of any American tourists having any problems there. In fact, while I was uh, a guest of the government, I think there were only five or six Americans in total imprisoned in Cuba, and and they were there for actual crimes. And so uh, smuggling or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, so uh, just don't fool around while you're there. Well, you shouldn't really fool around when you go to any country. Yeah. You know, I think it's important to respect local customs and local laws. But um, I I just want to say that uh, the people of Cuba are fantastic. They're among the kindest, most generous, uh, well-intentioned, really friendly people that I've encountered. And um, people ask me if I'd ever consider returning to Cuba, and I always say in a in a heartbeat, I'd go back. And, th- and they say, why? How can you possibly want to go back to that place? And and it's very simple. I want to meet the families of my cellmates, my former cellmates. 
because they sustained me for five years with their food. You mm. know, my, my cellmates would have family visitation every week, and their families would bring them food and th- that they would share with me. Mm. And their families knew who their cellmates were. And, and it, it was incredibly generous. They have wow. nothing. But whatever they had, they were willing to share That's it amazing. with me. And uh, you know, people uh, should not speak so ill of Cuba that they forget that the people there are the ones who are suffering from U.S. policy and Cuban policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have one last question, I think, before we wrap up. Um, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you made Aliyah. I made Aliyah on Golda Meir's birthday, May 3rd. Oh, I've been, I've been coming here for 40 years, and I always wanted to have a place here. I always wanted to be here. I love Tel Aviv. I've done a lot of work in the region. I've done a lot of work in Israel. Um, and every, every time I'd be anywhere in the region, I'd always program in a few days at the end of my trip in Tel Aviv because I could look at the Mediterranean, all the beautiful people, have a nice gold star or Carlsberg, and uh, <laughs> some hummus and, and look at everything and all of the crap would be behind me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I mean, this, this was the place I felt most comfortable. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, lives in Jerusalem. And, uh, and she and her family have a baby, our granddaughter. Uh, and uh, she and her wife uh, have a baby girl named Alona. And we're visiting as often as we go. I, I came here. My wife and I returned to Israel six times since I was released. This is in three years, so that we can see our our, uh, our so, daughter and daughter-in-law and and granddaughter. So you figured cut the cut the traveling and just move here. Well, it was really a, an agreement that my wife and I had because I always wanted to be in in uh, Tel Aviv. My wife wanted to be in Jerusalem, and we were supposed to alternate. Uh, you know, one trip in Jerusalem, one trip in Tel Aviv. And and we didn't do that. We kept staying in, in Jerusalem. And finally, the last trip, uh, we split the time half in Jerusalem, half in Tel Aviv. And my wife says, miraculously, Alan, why don't we get an apartment in Tel Aviv? And I said, okay. <laughs> and, Amazing. And uh, if we're going to get an apartment here, we should be citizens. We should be citizens anyway. Right. Why not? Lamalo. Lamalo. What I learned, and it's a very important uh, lesson, um, everybody deals with adversity at some point in their lives, sometimes more than one point in their lives. And sometimes this adversity seems just so overpowering uh, that we don't have any choices. But that's not true. Everyone has the ability to choose how to respond to that adversity. And I chose how to respond to my adversity, and it got me through. And, and I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. But I think it's important that everyone know that they also have that choice to make. They have control over how they respond to their own adversity. All of us do. That's beautiful. Amazing. You know, we're so happy to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. That was just so fascinating. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you. It's inspiring. Now it's, it's three nice Jewish guys. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy Israel and being we in Ole. Ha- 
before we leave, before we leave, we have a uh, collaboration with uh, the Jewish Journal, the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, which is a great news source. Uh, They have great articles. Um, Check them out. The Jewish Journal, uh, their website is jewishjournal.com. And... And uh, we accept donation, guys. Donations. Yeah, we do this on our free time, so if you guys want to throw some cash our way, we will not object. To njb.com slash donate. Thank and you guys for listening. Thank you so Thank much, you, Alan. Alan. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.